So we're in uh, Revelation chapter 2. If you brought your Bibles, feel free to open up. We've been going through the seven congregations. Uh, by way of reminder, the Apostle John um, was on the island of Patmos, and he had a revelation. Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him, amongst other things, I want you to write a letter to the seven congregations in Asia. And to each congregation, he follows like the seven-point outline. He um, identifies himself, addresses them by their city, tells them what he likes that they're doing right, tells them what he doesn't like, what they're doing wrong, offers them a judgment if they don't change, and then offers a promise for the faithful. And so we're in the congregation of Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, before I talk about that, I want to talk about the picture. Uh, I took that picture. You're looking at the complete archaeological site of Thyatira (laughs) and all the apartments behind it. They built a city over it. So I guess you could say the city's still there. It's just modern. So the ancient ruins are pretty much, well, they're ruined. And there's not a lot done there. Now, it's been probably close to 10 years since I've been there. Maybe since then they've dug deeper. I don't know. But there's not, we don't know as much from the archaeology about Thyatira that we do some of the other cities like Ephesus, for example. But nevertheless, I think we can learn some things about what was going on there. Jesus introduced himself as the Son of God. That phrase, Son of God, is used over 40 times in the New Testament. But I had to ask myself, why here? Because, you know, to the seven congregations, he introduces himself in a different way to each congregation. Here, he specifically introduced himself as the Son of God. Why? I'm not sure. I know that throughout the Bible, Son of God refers to his deity. But why did he need to emphasize that to them? Maybe it was something else. So just doing a little bit of thinking on this, there's some things I want to point out to you that were common in Thyatira and in the ancient Roman Empire in the first century. When Jesus calls himself the Son of God, he's not the only person who made that claim. And so he's kind of like standing up and saying, I'm the Son of God. Do you remember that show a long time ago, Black and White, maybe TV? Somebody would stand up and say, I'm the Son of God. The other guy would say, no, I'm the Son of God. And the third guy would say, no, I'm the Son of God. And there would be a panel, and they'd ask questions. They w- it wouldn't be the Son of God My name is Jack LaLanne, and I'm an exercise coach. The next guy would say, no, I'm Jack LaLanne, and I'm the exercise coach. And the third guy would say, no, I'm Jack LaLanne. And the panel would get to ask them questions to figure out who the real Jack LaLanne was. And, you know, if they got it right, they got a prize or whatever. I don't remember. There were a lot of sons of God back in those days. Well, maybe not a lot, but a couple very noteworthy ones. So when Jesus says, no, I'm the son of God... It's like a challenge to say, hey, you're going to have to figure out who the real son of God is. And it all started with Julius Caesar. How many of you have not heard of Julius Caesar? Let me see your hands. Yeah, everybody's heard of Julius Caesar. He's one of the most famous people who ever lived. And while he lived, they started calling him God. They even built a temple to him while he was still alive, had his image in other temples. 
And then after he died, the Roman Senate pronounced him the ascended God. And there was even a comet shooting across the sky after his death. And they said, see, there's proof that he's becoming one of the gods. Isn't that cool that their Senate can make gods? Our Senate can't even lower taxes. (laughs) Maybe the Romans had something. They could make gods. Well, Caesar didn't have a son to become the next emperor, so he adopted his great nephew, who later became known as Augustus, and he became his son. And since Caesar was God, guess what they started calling Augustus? The son of God. Now we've got a cult of people who worship not only Caesar, but Caesar's son, the adopted son, Augustus, as the son of God. And now he's got temples all over the place. And different emperors would really push the Son of God cult. And when the book of Revelation was written, the Son of God cult for Augustus was at its peak because one of the emperors, I think it was Vespasian, was really promoting it. In fact, some of the other emperors were claiming to be God too. Moy, these Romans, they had all sorts of gods. So I think when Jesus says, no, I'm the Son of God, it's a challenge. Who do you really believe is the Son of God? In Thyatira... One of their chief gods was Apollo. Apollo was the son of Zeus. So that kind of would make Apollo the son of God also. So there's this whole mind trip going on. To us, it's just, oh yeah, Jesus is calling himself the son of God again. We, we get that. We know who he is. But to them, it would have been a challenge, which is pretty cool. Verse 18 says, Jesus is the son of God. And then it describes him like this, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Remember, to each church, he describes himself differently. To the one church in Pergamum, he who has the sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And that tied to their culture, because Pergamum, in its history, had the right of capital punishment using the sword. And so they would have gotten that. Well, what about Thyatira? He who has feet like bronze and his eyes are blazing like fire. Well, Thyatira was known as a trade city. And they had bronze foundries there. It was famous for being such a trade center. And so when Jesus says his feet are like bronze and his eyes like blazing fire, the immediate thing would come to mind was Thyatira's bronze foundries. Obviously, for us who don't know that, we still get this idea of Jesus' majesty and power and all that. And that's still true and good but there would have been a little connection with him introducing himself. Remember, he's the one who walks amongst the seven congregations. He's active in everyone's life. He knows the culture, and he speaks directly to it. Another famous trade that was in Thyatira was uh, dyers. The dyers guild was there. Um, There's a very famous dyer mentioned in the book of Acts. Let me read to you. On the Sabbath, I'm in Acts 16, Uh, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate, this is Paul talking and Luke, to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So I know something now. Thyatira didn't have a synagogue, which is kind of odd because major cities had synagogues. There were Jewish people all over the Roman Empire. In fact, in some of the cities, they made up like 30% of the city's population. So the fact that there was no synagogue in Thyatira is interesting to me. It's compelling. Why? Especially because it was such a 
business hub. You would expect tradesmen from Israel to be there. So maybe it was very pagan, and the light of the one true God had not yet gotten to Thyatira through the Jewish community. I don't know. I do know that there is a church there, though. So we know there was no synagogue there because they gathered by the water to prayer. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She was a worshiper of God. Okay, he calls her a worshiper of God. So that means she was a Gentile. She wasn't Jewish. So Thyatira had no synagogue, but it had God worshipers, assuming some were Jews, don't know, but Lydia was a God worshiper, but not a Jew. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Thyatira was a business center. Not business in the sense of, you know, stocks and bonds, but blue-collar kind of business. This is where the stuff was made. There are all sorts of guilds and trades in Thyatira. Um, Guilds, to us, don't mean anything. We don't have guilds like they did in those days. We have unions. Our unions can be pretty powerful, pretty influential. Presidents really want the unions behind them. Governors really want the unions behind them. They're powerful. They're influential. They were even more influential back in the days of Thyatira. Let me tell you about the guilds in general. Uh, First of all, they owned property, which was a big thing. Anybody who owns property, the more you own, the more power and influence you have. Uh, Guilds made contracts, so they had legal authority. They exercised huge uh, authority or influence, like I told you, in politics, uh, economics, the social life, and even the religious life. Guild membership was compulsory for anyone pursuing a trade, which is interesting because let's say you go to Thyatira and you make your living dying in purple, and then you become a follower of Jesus you can't stay in the guild anymore. Well, why is that? Well, because guilds were religious organizations that worshiped false gods. In fact, when you went to a guild meeting, they'd start off going before a statue and making an offering for it, and then everybody would eat that food. And then the guild parties were kind of like orgy feasts. They were foul, they were obscene, and they were anti-God. So now your entire living has just been taken away from you. What do you do? Could you imagine the temptation to try to cut corners and figure out some way that you could walk with Jesus and still be in the guild? What would happen if right now you had no possibility of income? I don't mean look for another job. You can't. You can't do your job. All that's left to you in your mind may be a slavery. Well, I guess you could move to a city that's more friendly to tradespeople that doesn't have guild ownership, but they all had guild ownership. You don't want to sell yourself off as a slave. What do you do? It's a very difficult situation that the children of God were pressured to compromise so that they could make a living. Each of the seven churches, as I told you earlier, were commended for the good they did and warned about the bad. So let's take a look at verses 19 and 20 for the good and the bad. Jesus is talking to the church at Thyatira, and he says, I know your deeds, 
your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. All right, Thyatira. Jesus says, your love for me is good. There was another church, he says, you've lost your first love. That, that church was toast. They had no hope unless they, the whole church repented. But here he says, you still love me. Not only do you love me, but you do good. In fact, the good deeds that you do are even growing. You do more now than you did at first. That's great. This is a good church in that respect. They love Jesus and they do good works. Wouldn't that be all most churches would want today? Isn't that what everybody goes after? What else is there? Loving Jesus and doing good. See, there is more. And I think that the pastors and the, the, the authors who don't give you the more, they're doing you a disservice. Because Jesus goes on. He, he's got more to say about this church. Verse 20. Nevertheless, even though you still love me and you do good deeds, nevertheless, I have something against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching... She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. So who's Jezebel? I don't know. Maybe she ran a guild. Maybe she ran a church guild. Hey, you can join my guild and still be in the church. But she was doing like all the other guilds were doing, sacrificing to idols, committing sexual fornication. I know this. The temptation to compromise was strong and there were people in the church compromising. And Jesus said, I see you and I don't accept it. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who was she? I don't know. She claimed to be a prophet and she wasn't. So we know she was a false prophet. Was Jezebel really her name? It might have been. Or it might have been symbolic. This is the book of Revelation after all. Either way, whether it's symbolic or literally her name, anybody familiar with the Bible already knows what kind of woman she is just by giving her that name. Jezebel is probably the worst woman in human history. Every, in fact, even to this very day, if you want to call somebody a, a lousy woman, you call them a Jezebel. If they're a sleazy woman, you call them a Jezebel. If they're a man-stealer, you call them a Jezebel. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, there's not a worse word because she was the worst woman. And you know some of the things she did? She promoted Baal worship in ancient Israel. And what was Baal worship? Well, worshiping Baal required eating food, sacrificed to idols, and committing fornication. It was a sex cult, just like in Thyatira. Oh, maybe the, the name of the god is different. You can swap out maybe a Baal for a Zeus, but what's the difference? One's the god of thunder, the other's the god of thunder. They both want you to turn your back on God and do things that are indecent that God doesn't want you to do. Change the name, change the city, same story. Satan doesn't have to change his approach to humanity because we always fall for the same thing. As I've told you before, it's usually one of three things. Pride, money, or sex. He just can tempt us in those three areas and he always wins. Except for those of us who are onto his tricks. Verses 21 and 22. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. If you're the kind that likes to take notes in your Bible, you might consider underlining, I have given her time. Let me tell you why. 
Because that's a verse of grace. Why would he give her time? She's an evil, wicked woman leading people astray. Because that's how God is. He doesn't like to punish people. He doesn't like to slam people. He doesn't like to judge people. He likes to warn them. Don't make me count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. Don't make me get to three. Two and seven eighths. God doesn't like to punish people. He warns, he warns, he warns. And by golly, you never want him getting a three. Because when he does, well, it ain't pretty. In fact, verse 21 and 22, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her to suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Cast her on a bed of suffering. How poetic is that? She's leading people into sexual sin, so God says he's going to give her a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her. I think there's a play on words with the adultery there, too, because adultery, they were committing fornication. That's physical adultery. But when you worship an idol in the Bible, that's called spiritual adultery. You're bonding with somebody other than God. So there's this whole play on words going on there. I will make them suffer unless they repent. Two and nine-tenths. Repentance is a major theme in the Bible. And sadly, we don't hear much about it today. And that's unfortunate. There is no gospel without the word repentance. There is no Bible without the word repentance. It is a major theme in the Bible. To say there is no gospel or Bible without the word repentance would be like saying there is no doctor without sickness or without diagnosis. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you don't think you're sick, you don't go. Repentance is like the wake-up call. Let me give you uh, uh, one of my favorite verses on repentance. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 18 to help you understand what repentance is. Ezekiel 18, 30 and 31, uh, condensed. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. What is repentance? It's turning away from all your offenses. What's an offense? An offense is anything that's against God. It's sin. Things that God does not approve of. Oftentimes we know what those things are in our lives. Sometimes we don't. But God requires us to turn away from sin. It's mandatory. And then he says, rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Repentance is actually based on the Hebrew word to turn around. I like the mental image of God being over here with his hands reached out and you're doing this. But when you repent, the Hebrew word is to turn around. That's what repentance is. I think some people think repentance is the idea of, you know, maybe I should stop doing that. So I'll do this instead. Or maybe I should stop doing that I'll do this instead. No, no. It's all or nothing with God. Repentance is a full 180, 360, pardon me. Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
It was the message of the Old Testament prophets. It was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of Jesus himself. And it's the message that continues through the book of Revelation. God calls all people everywhere to repent, to stop doing evil, to start doing good, and to walk with Jesus. And when they don't, verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The book of Revelation, as we read in the next several chapters, is about God judging the earth. He's at the, don't make me get to three, at the book of Revelation, in this chapter, he's at two and nine-tenths, and two and ninety-ninths of one-hundredths. And then in chapter four following, he's at number three. People haven't repented, so he starts to judge. And even in judging, he's getting people's attention, and some of them are repenting through the punishment, the discipline that they're receiving. But this verse has two things I want to point out. Um, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. First thing I want to point out is that the Messiah is the judge. We're always talk about the nice side of Jesus, how he's the Savior. He is the Savior, but he's also the judge. On one hand, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but on the other hand, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus has a gentle side and he has a hard side. And you don't want to get on that hard side. Because <laughs> just as loving he as he is on the one hand, that's how hard he is on the other hand. You realize he gave his life to win us for heaven. But those who won't take advantage of it, he'll send to hell. So he's got all the fluffies and nice. But he's also got all the fire and the wrath. And I guess if there's anybody who's going to be the judge, I want, him to, I want the judge to be somebody who loves me. If I've got to stand before a judge, I want it to be the judge who cares about me. So he makes the best judge because of that. But also, uh, he makes the best judge because of his omniscience, which is in there as well. But before I go to the omniscience piece, that judge piece, in verse um, 27 of this chapter of Revelation chapter 2, Psalm 2 is quoted. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it talks about the mission of the Messiah. And this is the piece that's quoted. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The harsh side, the judge side, the wrath side is the part that's quoted here. But I told you he's the judge because, uh, you know, the wrath and the soft and all that part. But he's also uh, the good judge because he's all-knowing. There's no judge on the bench today that can't get it wrong. You know, we don't have all the data. And even if you have a judge that has all the data, he may not know exactly what to do. They're not like all as smart as Solomon is. And that's just assuming he's even a just judge, which you can't assume. People are people. Maybe it's toward their benefit to let somebody off or to convict somebody who's not guilty as a you know, way of punishing or something. But Jesus knows all things. It says, I am he who searches hearts and minds. So we know he knows everything. I taught you a couple weeks back that in the Jewish way of looking at things, there's a way of teaching without coming out and saying something. It's kind of like subtle. 
It's, it's a hint. One of those hints we just saw. Calling the woman Jezebel. That's all you need to say. Everything else is then you know it. So you can be taught about somebody without really saying anything about them. This was another hint. When Jesus said, I am he who searches the hearts and minds, he was saying something else too. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know what else he's saying. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 17. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what he, his deeds deserve. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the minds. That's what God says. That's what God does. So when Jesus turns around and says, I search the heart, I search the mind, he's saying he's God. So in Revelation, he didn't have to say it. He just had to say he does what God does, and then everybody would know that's exactly what he meant. So we may not have a lot on Thyatira from archaeology or from history, but I think we have enough to learn what they were dealing with and a lesson we can apply to ourselves today. I think what was going on in Thyatira is the church was being tempted to be just like everybody else in Thyatira. They were pressured. And some within the church were actually doing it. And some weren't. Don't you think we're pressured at Book of Life to be like the rest of the world? Yeah, we are. We've got the same TVs sitting in our living rooms. You realize some of the nasty programming that's on there would have been unheard of just a few years ago. It's like, it's porn. Right on TV, you can just watch it now. It's horrible. And, and some of the stuff that just a few years ago would have been so off limits to a Christian, now we're just kind of used to it. Eh, like the frog in the kettle. You know that thing, right? I get, I've never done this to a frog because I'm just not that mean. But I guess somebody did. You put a frog in some tepid water and put the burner on, and apparently the frog just stays in there because it's cold-blooded. He doesn't know it's getting hot until he boils alive. He dies, and he has no clue. But you put the frog in the hot water, and he jumps right out. I think it's been like a slow burn for us as Christians. We're just getting, you know, we drive down the street, on my way home, there's a billboard with a very large-breasted woman. It's obvious that they're trying to use this woman's breasts to get me to shop at their shop. I'm like, really? That's not nice. What are the three things that people are vulnerable to? Money, pride, and sex. So you're watching TV. We got the football game on. It's Thanksgiving. What could possibly be wrong with football? And then Pitbull comes out with, I don't know, a hundred half-dressed women shaking their booties right on the camera. That's not appropriate for a man of God to watch. So I turned off the football game. I'll wait till the stupid halftime's over and put the game back on. It's, and don't put up your hands, but how many of you left the TV on? It's a slow burn. We get used to things. I've been watching this one show, and I don't even want to mention it by name. It started out really good. It was standing for, for goodness and commitment and marriage and justice and fair play and bravery and perseverance. And then they started introducing real slowly some really bad elements. And the hero of the story became evil. But you still think she's a hero. 
because of what she did in the past. And the smut, I finally just woke up and said, what is this smut I'm watching? I'm done. I'm done with this show. And now I've got this new policy. I, I don't know how long it's going to last. Maybe I'll be in the pot with the frog. But my policy is this now. When I'm watching a TV show, if they do one thing that offends me spiritually, I'm done with that show. Done. I'm not going to give it another shot. I'm not going to do any more fast forwards. I'm not going to say, well, maybe the next episode will be better. Those are all the things I had been doing. I'm not doing it anymore. And they're not taking me down in the gutter with them. And you know what? Why do they do that stuff? It's not even necessary. It's kind of like the show's going along. Everything's good. Okay, let's watch somebody in the bedroom for a couple of minutes. Now let's go back to the show. Why are they doing that? Who's in control of these shows? These people are dirty. And what are they benefiting from it? Nothing. It's a satanic influence. It's, it's not good. All right, I'm off my soapbox. Telling you my story, hoping it will compel you to change your story. Because I feel like sometimes we're the church of Thyatira. We love God, we're doing good things, but maybe just some of us are compromising, and we've got to stop doing that. We've got to walk with Jesus 100%. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, please help us to see where we might have compromised. I know we're not worshiping idols. I know we're not doing things that we think are obviously wrong. And yet, maybe we just let the kettle get hotter and hotter under us. So I pray you would open our eyes, that your call to repentance would get through our closed eyes and our hard hearts, and to help us to walk with you. And I pray for those who have not yet made a commitment to follow Jesus, that you would open their hearts and their minds as well, that they would turn to him to have their sins forgiven and enter eternal life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.